Amen. Thank you, Patty. What an appropriate um, song, even though it was instrumental. We know the words, very familiar hymn, This Is My Story. This is my song, and that's that's appropriate because we're going to talk about the sanctity of human life this morning. And to understand properly the sanctity, the preciousness of human life, you really need to, to know your story. You need to know what your story is. You need to know where you come, you came from and where you're going and who you're accountable to. And what is what is church all about? What is community all about? And fortunately, God has given us his story and we are a part of it. And that's what we're going to explore this morning. I'd like to welcome everybody here. It's neat to see everybody packed in because it is a little chilly outside. So hopefully that'll keep us just comfortable enough not to fall asleep for the message. Well, if you didn't already know it, you probably know it by now that today is Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. And we're blessed this morning to be able to talk about that topic. We're blessed to um, have a guest speaker here. Kathleen's going to give us a report from the front lines of the pregnancy center, the community pregnancy center that we have. And Noah and Emily are going to bless us with a song pertaining to the preciousness of life following my sermon, and then Kathleen will speak. So this is a Sunday that's dedicated to God's truths about the sanctity of human life and how precious precious, precious it is and how important it is. And just for the sake, there may be some young people in here that have heard about sanctity of human life. You know, I've heard about it, I've seen it, I've seen gotten some pamphlets or Watch something about it on the news. But what what is it really? Why do we even have it? It's not like a holiday where everybody gets a day off and things like that. What is sanctity of human life? Where did it even come from? We didn't have it in the 60s. We didn't have it in the 70s. Well, the sanctity of human life originated, I believe, January 13th, 1984. And it is a presidential proclamation regarding the sacredness and the preciousness of life. And the reason it was originated on that particular date was because that day marked the 11th year anniversary of Roe versus Wade, where the Supreme Court made a ruling that guaranteed women uh, access to abortion. And so it was that year in 84 that then... President Ronald Reagan, who was very pro-life advocate, um, he believed that this new law struck down existing laws that were in place to protect the unborn. And so he instituted or originated this presidential proclamation of the sanctity of human life. And it is something that he reiterated this time every year during his entire term, as well as every uh, Republican president since him, has also made this presidential proclamation. Now, today, we just celebrated on whatever Sunday is closest to January 13th, and which would, of course, be today. So that's the idea behind why this is even in, in existence and why we would recognize it at all. And of course, if you know your Bible, you know that God has a lot to say. He has written our stories. He has a lot to say about the sanctity or the preciousness, the value of humanity. It's from his word that we get these truths. And 
His word is authoritative and it is our practice for our faith and our life. So we bring ourselves under these precious truths. Now, this morning, I want to turn to Genesis 9, uh, all the way the first book in the Bible at the beginning. We'll be in Genesis chapter 9. It's not your typical Sanctity of Human Life Sunday passage, but I think that you will see that it really sets the foundation and serves us well in understanding and being able to answer this question, how does God see human life? So I want to go ahead and read the first 13 verses. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the flesh of the sea, all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning from every beast. I will require it from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whosoever sheds the blood of man by man, his blood shall be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you be fruitful. And multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offering after you. Your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock and every beast of the earth with you. As many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you. That never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. And never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I made between me and you and every living creature that is with you. For all future generations, I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. So. With that in mind, with those words in mind, we want to, from this text, answer the question, how does God see human life? We want to consider this passage as God begins to speak about the value of man. And what preceded these words from God to Noah and his family, of course, was the great flood. And it was a a terrifying worldwide flood. The Noah and his family basically had just walked off the ark, the ark when God reinstitutes what we know of as the cultural command to multiply, to take communion, dominion and multiply and fill the earth. So just on the heels of this devastating flood, God speaks these words. And this flood, worldwide flood, is, is probably... A, a thousand times worse than anything that we have ever witnessed or heard about. And we have witnessed plenty of catastrophes in our lifetime. But if you think of the worst tsunami and, and the destruction that brought, or the earthquakes that hit in different places of the world, the floods that we witnessed, or even fires that recently we just heard about that devastates hundreds of thousands of acres, 
tornadoes that rip communities and their foundations right out of the ground. All of these things are terrifying to us. And yet the great flood that Noah and his family experienced was worse than that. And so these words are spoken on those heels. And you can imagine if you've been a part of that kind of terrifying, maybe what we would call act of God. I know that there was a a big earthquake in Japan many years ago. I think it was in Kobe. And for many years after that, if if you felt any, if the people felt any kind of tremor in the ground whatsoever, they would begin to hold on to things that struck terror in their hearts. Or perhaps if you have lived through a tornado or maybe you found a foxhole somewhere, but everything you own was ripped away and you watched your whole community destroyed. And then you start to see one day the wind pick up. It runs all through you. Or perhaps you have experienced a flood or landslide or things like this. And a drop of rain or the sky is black and ominous again. It does something to you when you've been through such a tragedy or disaster. All of your senses and perceptions are on high alert because you are constantly interpreting things based on perhaps that trauma that you experienced. And so here's Noah and his family off the ark and God comes to them really with what could be considered as shepherding words. And he wants to establish them again. What if you come off the ark and you can you imagine feeling a drop of rain and wondering again, what is it going to look like this time? So the good God comes with words of reassurance. Never again. Noah. This was God's furious wrath on man's sin, and it was ferocious. Got a taste of that. But never again, not in this way. I have a different plan to handle sin. Never again, not in this way, will I bring this kind of destruction. So be at rest. Be at ease. Establish yourself. Dig in. Scratch the dirt. Make a living. And begin to experience the peace in your heart. How does God see human life? These are words that express his great value and his great love for humanity. So the first thing I see in here to answer that question is that in God's eyes, life is of infinite value. You can't really put a price on it. In other words, we know this from verse three for your life, blood, I will require A reckoning from every beast. I will require it. And from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed for God made man in his own image. God, did I hear this right? That God gets angry if an animal takes the life of a human? Yes. And God gets angry when a human takes the life of a human. Yes. And both things, when man's blood is shed, have to give an account and a reckoning to God. He requires this reckoning and this account. Why? Because God loves life. God creates life. 
It's created for his pleasure and for his glory. And man in particular is the pinnacle of his creation. The pinnacle of his goodness in all that we see. Man alone has that unique ability to reflect the glory of God. And so of all the wonderful things that he made, if you want to know what does he cherish most? It's you. It's mankind. And so if you violate what God loves so much and has set his affection upon, he holds us accountable to the highest degree because man's life, he says, it's set apart. It's in a different category. So here's how this works. If you think about man's life is of infinite value. It's priceless. Do you have anything in your life that you would consider absolutely priceless? But what this means is it's something that no matter what price somebody sets on it, you're not going to give it up. You're not going to sell it for that. So it could be uh, maybe a, a precious piece of artwork that a shot one of your children that that died an untimely death. And so in your refrigerator, it was the last thing that they did. You mean, can you imagine how much that would mean to you? And if somebody said, oh, I love that picture. Can how much you want for it? Or maybe it's a family heirloom that goes back centuries. It just kind of tells your story. You're not going to sell it. It's a part of your identity. Or maybe it's it's a, a wedding band from a spouse that is deceased. And only that, the gold has a value, uh, modern day value in it. But the inscription and, and the memories that come with it. So the idea is that it's it's priceless. You, you can't buy this from me. There is no amount of money that you can offer that would make it worth it because this is so unique and it has so much value to me. And so many, it elicits memories and love and all the things that make life worth living. It could even be something silly to me or to you, but to that person, it is absolutely precious. And in a sense, this is what God is teaching Noah as they're going to reestablish the earth. And he is representing a new beginning for humanity. He says, this is off bounds. This is off limits. Life is to be held as precious. And a lot of people, and we look at this passage that a life for a life, and we think, well, capital punishment, and that's just violence for violence. And that actually uh, misses the entire point of what God is teaching here. It's not the point that that um, that well, that settles it a life for life settles it. It makes the account. The whole idea is that life is so precious. And of infinite value that the only thing that can even come close. To giving an idea of how precious it is to God is that another precious life is given for it. Of course, you see the cross coming. In that in the future. of infinite value. And we struggle with this. Every every society struggles with this. Because so let's just say if um, if uh, a life is taken and you go to court and the judge says for this life taken you owe a fine of $100,000 then what you just said well that life is worth $100,000. 
Or the judge might say 20 years in prison. So then you've made the judgment call that that life that was taken is worth 20 years in prison. But what's it really worth? Can we put a price tag on life? And I know in our world we have to try to figure these things out. But from God's perspective, the answer is no. It's just way too precious. So the only thing that can even give us a remote idea of the loss is by taking another life. Now, this may sound a little odd in our society, but you have to realize in that society, in archaic times, things we have so many freedoms and, and good values, thanks to God's word, by the way, in our Christian society, even though it's post-Christian, we still borrow from the Bible and the way we do life and our laws, fortunately. And we have so many equalities these days and freedoms. In that day, it was who has the most money or who's the most powerful. And so if a, if a rich person happened to kill a poor person, then he might say, Here, here's you know, 20 bucks for your troubles. I'm sorry about that. I'm sure that's painful. Now, if that same poor person would have retaliated against a rich person, then that rich person might go and just not wipe that person out, but the whole family, sheep, goats, and everything. So it, so what this is doing in this day and age is God is saying everybody, no matter rich, poor, wherever you are in society, every life in my eyes is of infinite value. And that's how the world and society is to be built. It is with that kind of mindset. Nothing is more valuable than human life in the sight of God. The second thing that we learn in answering that question in this passage is that life itself is God's. Very important concept in our culture. Who owns life? It's sacred because God owns it. That's why God says, no, I demand payment. I demand a reckoning. If you take a life, I'm aware of every drop of blood that's spilled. He has a personal interest and investment in his creations. And so he owns these things. Life is not ours to take because it's sacred. And in essence, it's on loan. So another illustration, if I give you money and I just say, here's a gift it's $100. You can do whatever you want with it. No strings attached. Maybe I should say $5 and get it right back into my reality of $5. Took me all week to save it up, but here it's yours. You can do whatever you want with it. There are no strings attached. That's a gift. But there's also stewardship. Whereas I might say, here's $1,000. And this is for you. But there are boundaries to it. There's limitations. There's a specific purpose I have in mind. I want to give it to you so that you can invest it and that I get a return. And this is a parable that Jesus actually gives involving kingdom principles. When he gives the talents to three different individuals in three different increments, he gives them on loan. He gives them for them to manage them. But the expectation is that they're not yours to do anything you want with it. 
They are yours to do what I desire you. It's a great honor and a great privilege for you, but I'm your master. And here's my expectation. And if you want to please me, then you will use these funds or this this gift that's on loan in a way that I desire. And you will be held accountable for it. That's life. Life is on loan. Our lives are not our own. The Bible says they were bought by a price. But even outside of that, they are God's. He brings us into existence. And we're on loan. You think about if your parents here, you realize this about your children. That we're responsible before God. And of course, they're responsible to honor their parents before God. But we are given our children as a gift of God. And in essence, on loan, because they're going to have their own lives and they're meant to have their own lives and live their own lives. And when we ever in, in humanity, in the history of humanity, when we ever start thinking that we actually own another human being in some kind of way, it always winds up with terrible consequences. This concept, just because God gives us, say, our children as gifts, we don't own them. They're not our slaves. We can't abuse them. We can't treat them like property or do anything that we want with them. It's not that kind of relationship. That's not how God brought them into our lives. You see this idea and this concept of the preciousness of life and the part that we play in it. The same thing goes with marriage. We don't own each other like property. We get to relate. We get to enter into relationships that God as Christ as the forerunner has provided for us. And it can be a beautiful thing when life is looked at and appreciated and related to in the concept and the teachings that God has provided for us in his holy word. Life is God's and he demands accountability for it. And in essence, we're all on loan to each other. God has given us to each other and we are accountable to our master and how we treat one another in the family, in the church family, community and society. We are accountable to see each other as God sees us. And then lastly, the principle, how does God look at an individual or human life? The Imago Dei, which of course is in the image of God. So of all of the things that God created and he created all things, only man did he stamp his imprint or his image upon. And that, again, sets humanity apart from all other creatures. Verse 6. For God made man in his own image. So human life is sacred because it's priceless. Human life is sacred because God owns it. It's his. And human life is sacred because it is created in the image of Of the glorious God. It reflects the character and the glory of God. All his righteousness, his virtue, his his rationality, his creativity. All these different ways that man reflects the glory of God. And he has been stamped with that imprint of ownership. And it is upon us. We come from him. And so in God's eyes, every living being, human being, has within it this inherent value and worth before it ever breathed on its own, before it ever accomplished one single thing, 
was precious in the sight of God because it's been stamped with his divine imprint. It's a reflection of him in that sense. So if we if we mess with man or we, we, we mess with each other in a way that is out of bounds, then we are marring God's image that he intends to spread across the earth. There's a Puritan, um, Thomas Watson. He wrote a lot of things, but one of the things he said about the image of God, when we, when we abuse one another, whether it's emotionally, spiritually, physically, when we bully one another, we look at each other, we treat each other meanly. He says, when you do that, when you violate another human being, you are tearing God's picture. You're distorting the image that he brought into this world to reflect his glory. And when we don't treat each other according to the commandments that he's given us, we're distorting it. We're tearing it away. And it's not just tearing at each other's throats. We're tearing at the image of God that he intended for the world to see. Tearing at the image of God that he intended for to have an impact on our fellow human beings. You know, in many countries, images are a big thing. Uh, Iran is one of them, and you see it in the news these days. A lot of cultures, when they support a, a figure or something, they make a big poster and a big sign because they want that image out there. This is who we're for. This is what we support. At the same token, you might see that same image if they don't love that image or don't support or their enemies or against it. They What do they do symbolically? They take that image and they tear it all up or they... Throw it down or they set it on fire. And it, it, it communicates, this is what I think of that image, that symbol of the person. This is my motive. This is uh, my feelings towards that. This is my value. And it's the same thing in humanity, in society. How do we value God himself? But through the way that we teach, we treat one another. Of course, the second great command. Love your neighbor as yourself. And that in fulfilling that, we honor God. Because the, the, the closer we are able to conform to the image of Christ, the more we shine his glory. You think about a, a reflection. If you want to get ready for church, make sure you look presentable. You didn't leave something on your face or in your hair that you don't want everybody knowing about. So you have to find a good reflection. And you might, you don't have a mirror, you might have a piece of stainless steel around the house or something. And you can kind of get a little bit of picture of that, but it's a little fuzzy. But it's in the ballpark. Or you might go down to the pond and look in the nice still water. That might be even a little better. But the water's kind of dark, maybe a little murkier. The sun's not hitting it just right. But if you get in that mirror, it's a brand new mirror. It's a nice high dollar mirror with a reflection in the back of the glass. And then you can see it clearly. Everything you need to see. See, when we, when we treat each other with hatred, jealousy, we're tearing at each other. We're distorting because it's bringing our worst out. And we're at each other's throats, ripping Nashing. But when we treat one another, love our neighbors as ourselves, what we're doing is we're cherishing one another. And when, when there's that safe environment of love, 
That's how we thrive in the gospel to conform to the image of Christ. That's when we can look, reflect God's glory the best that we can in this life that we've been given. The image of God, it's a, it's a unique thing that we possess. And it's so sad to live in a culture that, that just throws that out. That whole idea of our purpose and meaning in humanity. We alone reflect, so we're creative, we're moral, we know the difference between right and wrong, we're, we're rational, we can reason, we can problem solve, and we're eternal. We, re, we reflect God's image in that way as well. When we face the judgment throne, we're going to live based upon the judgment we're given by God in that state forever. It's how we reflect His image. Our personalities, rationality, eternity, creativity. And I will add that if we do not understand that this truth, that we're created in the image of God, that we will carry within us so many unresolved issues. Because as the offering song says, this is my story, this is my song. We, we are in God's narrative, but it's His story. And if you take yourself and you put yourself in a story that's not real or true, you're going to have problems with all the characters that you bump into in that story. And if we don't understand this about our makeup, we have desires and ambitions that actually come from something. If we don't understand that in this world, no matter what we achieve, we're, we're so works-oriented and we, we think, if I just had this or I could achieve this, that will bring my heart to peace. But what we need to know is you, you can have the fastest internet in the world. You can have the fastest car. You know, the, the, the spouse that you want, the job that you want, all the money, all the property and all these things. And you will still have a restless in, restlessness in your heart. Uh, who answers for that? If we don't understand that that restlessness comes because, well, you know, what we have here is good. But you weren't created for that. You were created for God. And He is way more glorious than this. So you were created for something way more glorious and satisfying than this. You can spend your life in therapy. Trying to figure all this out. But we have a restlessness. Because the world is not as it ought to be because of sin. And we have this desire of, of greatness. Because a great, great God created us. And we will not be satisfied until we are at peace with our Creator. And it's just basic Christianity. And we find it in God's holy word. We don't have to put our heads together and get the wisest men in the community to try to figure this stuff out when God has graciously revealed it to us in His word. We need to know our story. We need to know that we are here to... Reflect Him. And without these truths, we won't understand the preciousness of life. Can't We need to understand this story because we are constantly trying to build this society, right? And you see people's opinions on the news. It's filled with it on the Internet. Everybody has their own opinion of how we should treat one another. What kind of consequences should come out of things. What should be highlighted. What should we really devote ourselves for. And you have all these different perceptions and worldviews. We won't understand life without these. All of these different worldviews cannot create the very society that they want to create without an understanding of God. 
Because then it just becomes a matter of personal opinion. And there's no system or idealism that rises higher that we can all rally to. There's nothing outside of ourselves pushing us, if we don't believe in God, pushing us in a certain direction to make us one decision more appealing than another. So today we have all these opinions and popular culture that seems to sway things. We're created in the image of God. There's a lot of inconsistencies in our lives when we don't understand this. So we think about Roe versus Wade. And I think, to be intellectually honest, a lot of times our culture is just not intellectually honest with itself. And that is, we, we hold this view, but it's totally contradictory here. Or we make this law, but it totally contradicts what we know in real life. What we know on the streets. Our culture has been called the culture of death. I guess that means we're not doing the best job at celebrating life and loving and loving life. We, we do better perhaps at rebelling against it. And we have concluded in many avenues that man's only worth what he is able to give a materialistic worldview. You're only worth what you have to offer. And so we fought for the rights of euthanasia. I shouldn't have to suffer the rights to end your own life is given. And that has now become not just a right to end your life, but an obligation. Because the mindset is that you are you are using valuable resources and you have nothing to give back. And people that have something to give back need those resources. It's an obligation you have. So the right to take your life becomes an obligation to take your life. We see this inconsistency in that euthanasia. We also, of course, see it in our view of the sanctity of human life and abortion. It creates great dilemmas in our society. Currently, 90% of babies with Down syndrome are aborted. So it's quickly becoming a thing in our generation, a thing of the past. And so, on this trajectory, there will come a time when people might not even know what a Down syndrome baby is. Is it because we cured it? It's because we killed it off. It's because of human decision, human value, or the lack thereof on life. But based on what we're learning in God's Word, it's, it's precious. It's in the image of God. And life is not ours to take. It's on loan and we're accountable to it. I'm very relieved as I wind down here. I'm very relieved that it seems that our culture actually is leaning more towards pro-life. Leaning more in line with what we're learning in God's words these days. And less gullible to believe the inconsistencies in what I would say are lies. And one of those is perpetuated through this Roe v. Wade decision. But if we're going to be intellectually honest with ourselves, I think we want to line up truths with what we feel in our hearts and the reality of what we see in our lives when it comes to a woman's right or a woman's right to choose 
whether to have her child or abort her child. Very sensitive, very emotional subject. And the idea is that the mantra is that a woman has a right over her own body. And it goes a long way. I guess the question is, is that life in the womb her own body? See, when we're all on the streets, if you see somebody is what we would call expecting, what are they expecting? They, it, on the streets, we know that if somebody is expecting, they're expecting a child. They're expecting another human being because that's what grows in the womb. We don't say, so when we say, how are you doing? It's in reference to the child that is growing in their womb. It's not like, how's your body? I mean, I'm, sounds facetious, but think about these things. Nobody pro-choice or pro-life we don't say, how's your body coming along since you have a right over your body? How's your body coming along? We, we see when we're when we let off our guard, when we're not in the in the courts, we call things a, a fetus or a blob. But on the streets, we know we know these things. And I'm so grateful to God that that eyes are being opened to these kind of truths. But because we're still not convinced about these things, there is great stress and dilemma that's brought forth in our society. Now, surrogate motherhood is a big thing. And you don't hear it from the media, but it often causes terrible situations in that you hire somebody to carry your baby. Now, abortion is legal. You're the legal mother because it was your reproductive product. But so you decide after a test you want to abort that baby. It's not what you want. But then the surrogate's maternal instincts kick in and says, mm -mm, this is a real life. And even though they've signed their rights away to be a surrogate, sign their rights away to say, no, I have no right over this thing in me. Then they take it to court. And if they can prolong it long enough beyond the abortion law, then it's just, you see, all of this is not in conjunction with how life really works. And it's catching up to us and it's causing terrible, terrible dilemmas and pain. And this is what happens when we ignore God and we try to decide man's worth on our own things. And it just makes no sense. It, no, it makes no sense that our society has given rights by the way, a woman can do whatever she wants to do with her body, really. I mean, if, if you want to get surgery or piercings or whatever, that's not really the issue. It's, it's the issue of the body that's in you, the person that's in you. It's another life. That's what I grew up learning, even in with secular education in public high school. And it just doesn't make sense, if we're going to be intellectually honest, that... Two pregnant women at 20 weeks. What is the difference between the life in them? Nothing. They're at the same stage. The only difference is that we've given a woman the right to decide the value of that child. And, it's, it's, and I'm sad because I feel like there's going to be a rude awakening. And it reminds me of the Apostle Paul who was so zealous, persecuting the church and so convinced I am serving God, I am doing the right thing. And then God opened his eyes. And I fear for those that are so zealous and thinking, well, I'm setting women free. 
this is good that their eyes will be opened as well. And I pray they will. Dennis Prager says that good societies can survive immoral things, but only because we know what is moral and what is not. That is to say, okay, when we realize, oh, oh, I did something terrible, but this is the right way, so let's live in it. But when we call evil good and, and, and good evil, society cannot survive with that. But be of good courage. Because Christ makes a difference. And it's always been the church and the people of Christ that make the difference. That bring this worldview to bear in how we look at one another. How we treat one another in the preciousness of life. We need to be a people that absolutely celebrate life as God created it. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we had that reputation? Wonderful that people that came through these doors felt so welcome and loved as being created in the image of God, that they didn't want to leave until they found out, well, what's going on here? Why are you acting like this? That can happen, the power of the Holy Spirit. I just want to encourage you that your testimony, your witness, your understanding of what you have heard here this morning can make an incredible difference in the world and the culture that we live in for the glory of God. To help us celebrate life, I'm going to ask uh, Noah's going to come and I think Emily, and they're going to sing a song, and then Kathleen will come and share.